0: Are you in, in fashion. Fashion? are you in fashion? Do you see what she's wearing? <gasps> shoes? I'm Sonia Sly. My heels are killing me. Um, but I was told I have a backstage pass. You will need to get the right pass to get behind me, Pam. Like I need sorry. to go. Code red, code red, code red. We have a situation. I'm taking you inside the fashion industry to discuss trends, the reality behind the glamour and the highs and lows of a fast-paced industry that never stops. to meet you. <laughs> Kiwi designer Karen Walker has created a global brand, and you'll find her label stocked as far afield as Japan, Brazil and even Croatia. She also has a way of getting involved in the kinds of unexpected creative collaborations that just strike a chord with her ever-expanding audience. I called up with Karen at her Auckland workroom, where I was taken to a room that echoes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, let's have a look and then I'll decide. To discuss the changing tides of fashion, motherhood, and, well, being part of a machine that doesn't have an off switch. So, first of all, Karen, what's one of the most embarrassing things you've ever worn and owned? Fashion's all about
1: built in obsolescence, so everything you wear virtually, there's a certain point where you look back and you go, oh my god. You know, then you kind of just get over that and it becomes just like, that was that moment in time. I can be quite classical, really, in the way I dress. I don't have that, like, photo album full of pictures of me in like, you know, 3 sleeve sweatshirts or whatever, that I look back and go, oh, my God. It's generally, you know, it's a bit of grey cashmere and some jeans.
0: So, I mean, would you say that, that your design aesthetic then is, is it reflective of your personal tastes? It is,
1: yeah. You know, I'm I'm lucky that I get to sort of walk into the showroom each morning and go, what do I feel like wearing today, and pull anything I like off the racks. It's dress-up day for me every day. Yeah, everything we do is reflective of my personal taste. In everything we do, there is always a sort of utility, masculinity, pragmatic wearability to everything we do as a starting point, and then we might twist it on its head in some way, throw some feminine frills against a really hard-ass kind of denim or... We don't do sort of red carpet clothes. We don't do sort of crazy, like, how would I wear that kind of clothes, like head-scratching clothes.
0: How do you feel when you see those kind of head-scratching sort of garments? I mean...
1: I get it. When I see a really good designer doing it really well, I totally get it and I appreciate it. It's when you see the sort of bad versions that you just go, oh, my God, stop. But, you know, everything's not for everyone.
0: I guess your design aesthetic has... Evolved, but it sort of also remained true to its, yeah, it's original. It's, it's
1: evolved in that fashion; changes all the time. That's its job. Really, my style has been there since day one. You know, the very first garment I made for sale to sell to a friend was a man's shirt. Obviously, it was a friend of mine who was in a band, and I made it in a liberty print floral cotton. So that's the essence right there. It's about a functional, masculine. Grounding with a sort of contrast thrown over the top of that.
0: And so when did you know that you wanted to be a fashion designer and when did you fall in love with fashion?
1: I knew I wanted to be a fashion designer at about 15, but I fell in love with fashion much earlier. From six or seven, I really fell in love with fashion. For a number of reasons. You know, my mother was very stylish and of my earliest memories of her are very elegantly... Presented at all times, whether she was going out to a, the evening event or just coming to pick me up from the school gate, she was always the most elegant mother. So I think that was very much uh, part of my grounding. My grandmother taught me how to make a skirt for my Barbie when I was five, and that. You was you remember kind of, it? Oh yeah, it was a, a circular skirt. Yeah, it was like there's a big circle and there's a small circle, and there. Uh, Thread some and, elastic through it. Yeah, and that was kind of a key moment because it was like, oh, so I can have an idea and execute it and make it. That Barbie doll had so many circular skirts. And, and also my mother, you know, she had a Bernina sewing machine and a box of fabrics. You know, rainy Sunday day, I'd diddle around with that. But that was the tools that were available in my house for some form of self-expression.
0: So when you then started the brand... Did you have, like, an ultimate vision for it? Because obviously, like, it's a global brand
1: now. No, when I started, it was just for fun, you know. I was 18 and just made a few things for friends and other people wanted to buy it. So it was just for giggles, really. There was no grand plan. There was no path. first 10 years, it was really, it didn't really matter. After the first few years or so suddenly it became like actually there could be something in this, maybe it's actually a real business.
0: Like where are we at? How many years on are we with the Karen Walker brand now? Almost 30. Okay. But is it any less fun than it was when you started?
1: It gets actually more fun every day.
0: So how do you keep that inspiration alive and what are the pressures now?
1: Oh yeah, there's lots of pressure. The work creates its own energy. Every day there'll be things that come across my desk that are really good and that creates the energy and the enthusiasm. I love what we, we put out. I love the people I work with who are capable of going on this voyage with me and creating this work.
0: I mean, it just seems like you've been on this massive journey because the brand has just grown. What do you think it's taken for you to get to, to that point? Surely there were tears along the way oh as well.
1: God, there were probably tears last week. Constantly having to rethink about how you thrive or create the kind of work you want to create, or stay in business. None of it's easy. What it really takes is uh, you know, a good, clear idea of where you want to be, what you want to do, and why you deserve to be in the market, in a very cluttered, busy, noisy market. What have you got to say that's different, and why should you even exist? And have a really great team around you. you know? Now,
0: in this very well, cluttered market, she's always managed to reinvent the brand and capture the attention of a younger audience – So what's the secret?
1: When you're a brand whose starting point is about kicking against the norm and looking to outsider culture as a starting point, what happens when suddenly you're the establishment? How do you... Still, keep that outside a point of view. How do you stay relevant? And also, in fashion, how do you stop from becoming, oh, that was my mum's brand, she used to love that. You know, so you've got to keep that energy and that youthfulness and that looking forward, I think, is what's so crucial in any creative business. But there's that awkward space in the middle in fashion where you're like, you're not this, the brand new thing that speaks to this generation, and you're not the Burberry or, you know, some very established brand. That's, I think, something that working in the fashion field and being a brand that's coming to the end of its third decade, how do you stay relevant and youthful and and having a voice that speaks to the next generation coming through as well as your already there fans?
0: You know, I sense that there's a bit of a rebel in you.
1: Yeah, when I came into this business, I was very much the outsider and, and in many ways still am. Choosing to work in Grey Lynn in Auckland and having a go at selling around the world. I mean, that's kind of nutty. Just being based in New Zealand, we're already the outsider in the global sense. But yeah, I guess I am a rebel. I've ne- certainly never been one just to go with the flow.
0: You're no longer showing at New York Fashion Week. And obviously that's because of the, the changing tides of fashion. Everything's kind of moving to digital. What were some of the highlights of being involved and showing at New York Fashion Week? And what are some of the, mm. the downsides of that?
1: Well, you know, we showed in New York Fashion Week for 20 seasons, so that was 10 Februarys I didn't get to have in Auckland, in the only good month, <laughs> otherwise. so 10 summers I missed when I was actually in, you know, minus 30 and Lizard's in blizzards in New York. This business is all about turning up to the industry, to your customer. And when we started showing New York Fashion Week 11 years ago, that was kind of the only way you could turn up. You had to physically be at Fashion Week, send 33 looks down a runway and wait for the review on style.com. And that was relevant then. And then 20 seasons later, the world's changed. It's moved on. There are many, many ways to turn up. And we still turn up, but just in lots of different ways. You know, that concept of fashion shows is so different now to when it first started. You know, I just read Christian Dior's autobiography not long ago, and he was talking in it about when they would present their salon shows and they would invite the couture customer and also the media. And there was a rule in the shows that you were allowed to write down notes, but you couldn't do drawings and you definitely couldn't take photos. They found someone once who snuck a camera in and she got expelled and was never allowed into a show again. I read that around about the time we stopped showing in New York and it was so interesting because it just really brought home for me that that paradigm of a fashion show six months before the clothes are going to be worn by the consumer was really built around that model of it's secret. The consumer doesn't see the product until it's actually in the stores or ready to be delivered into their hands. And the model of fashion shows now, you know I look at our fashion shows, there'd be like 500 people in the audience and every single one of them with a camera and the looks would be out on Instagram before the last girl was even off the runway. Are you
0: frustrated by that? Well,
1: it just doesn't really work anymore because what it means is that you're presenting your ideas to your end consumer and they're seeing it. It's not just the industry anymore, it's the end consumer who sees it. And then you're saying to them, look at it and love it and be excited about it. Now forget about it because you can't have it for six months.
0: Or just think about it for six months and then hold on to (laughs) it.
1: But people don't do that. They want it now or they'll forget about it. So as a marketing tool, it's flawed. It's sort of broken as a marketing tool in today's environment.
0: When the reviews would come out, were you ever concerned? Like every time after a fashion show? Yeah, at the beginning
1: very much so because the reviews were so important then we've never had a bad review you know at style.com or vogue or business of fashion they've always been great what was happening towards the end of that 20 seasons was you know at the beginning i would wake up at 2am and check style.com and then wake up at 3am and check style.com wake up at 4am and if it wasn't up by 5am i'd just be sick and by the end of it it was like the next day, I'd be like, oh, did you read the review? Oh, no, I haven't read the review yet. Oh, I'll have a, I'll have a look. And, you know, you realise that actually it's nice, it's important, but it's only one element of what's important. But it's like there's so many other ways that the industry and the consumer's point of view comes out to you.
0: Which can just be one of them now. good and bad, can't it? Like if you've got just the average, you know, spectator, you know, person with a blog. Yeah writing about your work i mean are you more affected by that than by you know a fashion reviewer
1: you know what it is just as important it's about how far that message reaches you know what it means to your customer so some are important and some are not important but what you have to remember now is that there's no sort of all controlling one or two publications whether it's good or whether it's bad or whether they like it or whether they don't like it, it comes at you in so many different ways that there's kind of no one voice. Fashion has you know, had the same sort of democratisation as music when it went digital. The power is actually now more in the consumer's hands than the media or the designers. It's the consumer that gets to say whether something's good or not.
0: And that's changed dramatically too now with people shifting... Towards being you know, very conscious about what they consume and you know, with a move towards sustainability and ethical clothing, what pressures does that put on a brand like yours that is really established?
1: No different to what it always has been. The work has to be really great. Otherwise, why bother? Consumers, me included, I guess some people just shop because they're addicted to shopping or they love them, whatever. But I think many consumers, they only want it if it's really great. Otherwise it's just more stuff, cluttering up my life and ending up in a landfill in ten years' time, you know, so why would I want that? I think it's more and more about quality, quality of the ideas, quality of the make.
0: What's the feeling that you get when you do see someone down the street wearing, you know, a Karen Walker piece? Oh, I
1: love it, and I see it every day. That feeling's still not worn off. And sometimes I'll say hi, and sometimes I won't. Sometimes I'll leave them in peace, and sometimes I'll thank them. And, you know, it just depends, you know how I'm looking (laughs) but you know that's still a thrill I was saying to somebody the other day that I can't remember the first time that happened and that that's quite careless of me to have allowed that memory to go because that would have been such an important moment I can remember the first time I saw somebody wearing something of ours in New York or in Tokyo or in London but I can't remember the first time ever it happened I shouldn't have let that one go but I still get a thrill out of that every day
0: now, you're a mum. I'm not sure how old your daughter is now. She's nine. When you become a mum you're a career woman, you know, it changes your life dramatically. Like, how, how did it change things for you?
1: I shifted into less but better mode. I'm always pragmatic, but I just became even more pragmatic and just, like, don't muck around with any nonsense. And only do it if it's really worth doing. And I kind of decluttered my life of tasks and projects.
0: And do you love being a mum? Yeah, yeah.
1: 99% of the time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and what challenges does it present, though, when you are juggling your time and you are spending time getting ready for New York Fashion Week? Oh, you
1: know, I'm not the only person who's got a kid and a job. It's like, how do you make sure everybody gets the attention they require and deserve and you want to give them? You know, If it means that I'm not going to have Sunday with my daughter, then I generally don't do it. And I give her the attention that I think she deserves and requires and should have. <laughs> Although sometimes she does still
0: take my phone out of my hand and go, stop looking at your phone. But um, then there
1: she does because she wants it.
0: There is nothing it's that crazy. this designer can't do, um, and she's a force well, to be well, reckoned with. But way. she still considers the brand. I've
1: always thought of it as niche, we've never been a mass brand. We work on a global scale, we're in a thousand stores or something, but we're still very niche, it's still very, very, very small in the global sense. And, yeah, that was a very focused decision You know, when we first started working outside of New Zealand that I knew that if we wanted to really make the kind of work that we loved and get a certain scale out of it so that we could live, that we would have to be global. I think of it just like we've got this very small campfire of people who we sit around and... Sounds very cosy. <laughs> it is super cosy, you know, it's really lovely.
0: How do you feel, or what are your thoughts about whether New Zealand... Designers are moving to at the moment, and where the fashion scene is at here.
1: Uh, You know, I don't keep an eye on very much outside of my own stuff, to be honest. And when I do keep an eye on stuff, it's generally art or film or other things. Yeah, I kind of vaguely know what's going on, but but yeah, I think that designers here and globally, and people outside of fashion, also, I think that everything's just becoming so niche now. I think that's a reaction to. You know, globalisation, you know, niche is the new mass, right? So when you've got the really big, mega-global brands sort of absorbing that side of the market, if you're not that, you can't compete against that, so you've got to do it differently. I think that's why, you know, so much of what we see now that people are excited about and enjoying is very, very small. Not just fashion, everything.
0: What would you like to see happening in the fashion industry that isn't happening right now?
1: Well I think there's going to be a real reaction to the speed. You know what's changed in fashion since I started in the business was everything's become very fast and very much a machine and I think that that's quite exhausting for the people inside the machine and the people who are looking in from the outside and so I think that there's going to be more and more of a shift away from that and into you know a calendar that suits you. Like Azzedine Alaya just puts out things when he feels like it, like $20,000 dresses or whatever, but yeah, they're just so beautifully crafted that it sits so far outside of yeah, the mass market, but it's just about beautiful things that are incredibly well done and put out in a calendar that suits him. And I think that we're going to see more and more of that and yeah we've done a bit of that in our own way since we're no longer showing New Fashion Week it doesn't have to be two big seasons a year now we do four small seasons a year so every three months there's a little bit of newness coming out into the market but it doesn't have to be vast it's just about you know 50 small things four times a year and I think that's a much more interesting way to work and something that is more in tune with how people actually want to shop.
0: And do you feel like you quite like a slight (laughs) incrementally kind of slower paced?
1: Yeah, you know, it has allowed us to slow down a little bit. Like our, our timeline for creating product is quite long, so we don't like rush at the end. With our eyewear, for instance, it's about 18 to 24-month process of, from starting the design to the product being on the shop floor. With jewellery, it can take 18 months to develop a product. With fragrance, our first fragrances, it took 24 months from the start to getting it into the stores. I don't like rush. I like just being able to really give a product the time that it requires to do it well.
0: Because over the years you've also done quite a few collaborations and so what have been some of the challenges that those have presented?
1: Yeah, you know, our business is really built on collaborations and working with people. Yeah, I started this business because I couldn't find the kind of clothes I wanted that spoke to me. That's the same reason that we went into eyewear and into jewellery, paint, fragrance, etc. Because I felt that there wasn't a product in that area that spoke to me in an interesting way. So, yeah, when we started with fine jewellery 15 years ago, there was really nobody doing fine jewellery in a cool, every day, wear it with your jeans and with a takeout coffee kind of approach. When we started in eyewear, there was nobody doing fun, big cool, directional, oversized eye where it was all just quite generic with a logo down the temple. Then we started in paint, you know, it was all just like here's a five hundred colour paint chart. And it was like, well that's making my head explode, so what's it like for somebody who doesn't work in the area of colour every day? So, you know, let's do a twenty five colour paint chart. So it was all about filling a gap that existed in my world. They all require expertise. I'm not going to be mixing paint up in my back room, you know, or fragrance. Like, I want to go to Charabot, at the oldest fragrance house in France, thanks very much.
0: What have been some of the highlights of your career and then, like, some of the, the low lights?
1: Thousands of both, hundreds oh, of thousands really? of both. You know, there's not too many to list. Oh, you know, creating a brand that people love, that somebody will save up their babysitting money for to go out and buy a runaway girl necklace, you know. That's how big a highlight you want, like that's as good as it gets that somebody really cares but you know it's all incremental it's like both the successes and the failures.
0: Do you have any regrets?
1: Millions of regrets who doesn't? (laughs) God if I could you know start all over again knowing what I know now there's millions of things I'd do differently you just got to hope there's more in the pluses column than the minus column.
0: And just lastly What would you say to the five-year-old Karen who was sitting there making all of those circle skirts that were accumulating on the side table there?
1: Uh, I'd just say it's all going to be okay.
0: That was designer Karen Walker. You've been listening to My Heels Are Killing Me. I'm Sonia Sly. To find out more or to listen again, head to our podcast page on the rnz.co.nz website.